welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am here with the author of a horror novel that I am, um, as I was just saying before we started, I am five pages from the end of, and I am kind of dying, but you know, there's no better reason to pause reading than to talk to the author himself. So let's get right into it. (laughs) Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Uh, Hello, my name is Neil Sharpson, and the book that is killing you is uh, Knock Knock Open White. (laughs) I yeah I am really loving this book. It um it, it it hits so many of my particular fondnesses. I love Irish folklore. I love stories that deal with um intergenerational trauma and I love dual timelines and all these things are done so well. But um before we get into the book itself too much, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your journey to the book when you got into writing and sort of um, you know, the inception point of this book, perhaps. Oh, God. Okay. So <laughs> um, when I got into writing, it's like, oh, like, since I can remember, I've always been just kind of like coming up with stories, like since I was very, very small. Um, so I suppose how the, this is this, you're going to regret, you're going to regret asking this now, because it's so complicated. Um I studied um, Irish folklore uh, in college, and uh, which which shows up a lot in the book. So you've read a lot of this is going to start sounding very familiar because the book is at least partially autobiographical. Um, but while I was studying Irish folklore, I came across um, this story called uh, and Hoggart, uh, which means uh, the the devil's son is priest, uh, which is an incredibly dark um a fairy tale about a a scholar who discovers a a corpse on the road and he has to pick up the corpse and carry it to various houses and the corpse i won't i won't spoil the story but it's it's a very very messed up story and i was like oh my god this is i need to do something with this um so i ended up turning that into a stage monologue called a corpse on the road um which wasn't very good um part of the reason was because uh, I didn't really have an ending for it um it was kind of like the ending in the original story was just kind of like it goes off and it, it it's quite it, it, you couldn't really do it and I couldn't really do it justice and in in just a, like a one-person monologue um so I kind of put that to one side this is this is basically my writing process is just digging up stuff I wrote like 10 15 years ago and then finally finding something to do with it um so while that was happening oh no actually like long before that that happened then a few years passed and a friend of mine and i we decided to um submit a short film to rte that's the kind of like the the national broadcaster here and i decided to write a horror short about this based on uh there was a tv show on in ireland like 20 30 years ago called bosco and I thought it would be kind of like a cool idea if you kind of like, what if Bosco was haunted? What if what if Bosco uh, was about this cute little puppet who lives in a box and said, okay, what if Bosco was actually the Slender Man? <laughs> uh, so it kind of like, I wrote this short 
and we kind of like we submitted it didn't didn't and that was called knock knock open wide which is actually is taken from it was a rhyme that they used in bosco so it's kind of like it's it was it kind of anyone any, any irish person who hears the title of this book is like oh it's about bosco they just kind of like you know it's it's um so i kind of like I, but that ended up getting going nowhere so i had the kind of like this one these 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 two entirely different so they were conceived entirely separately and I was thinking, well, hang on. The first one didn't go anywhere because um, I didn't have an ending for it. And this short can't really go anywhere without me expanding on it. And then I said, because I'm just so lazy. So I ended up basically these two entirely separate things kind of ended up fusing together. Uh, so Knock Knock Open Wide became, uh, so, so A Corpse on the Road kind of became the attain sequences of uh, Knock Knock Open Wide. And so eventually I had this kind of like, and so I had the, the character, the first became the mother of the, the main character, the second. And it kind of likes, I was able to expand it into the kind of, uh, into this multi-generational story. Um, so there, I told you it was complicated, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, and that's fascinating to me uh, because something that I thought a lot about while I've been reading this is, you know, sort of the, the strange similarities between folklore and children's media and maybe how we remember it and the kind of position maybe that it occupies in our brains because as I was thinking of it they you know they both kind of operate by like dream logic you know and our our memories of them or our associations with them tend to be like very um emotionally charged maybe and very personal and I'm wondering if that was something that you were kind of thinking about you know the way that these stories sort of like occupy space in our lives um I wouldn't say that exactly um I I what it was really kind of um I don't there is a kind of there's a slightly unsettling quality to a lot of children's media particularly from the kind of like from the 80s yeah um uh, just it was kind of like it was an era of time where everything had to be very 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 nice and like absolutely zero conflict and I believe this was true like this was in in Irish me media and in British children's media and American children's media there was kind of like uh, and that is kind of like that's something that's quite easy to kind of like to to, to tip over and to kind of like into the sinister mm. um and so it's just I think it was more it was just kind of um because I was because I, I I studied this stuff and because I kind of like it was so kind of like getting so immersed in kind of like in changeling lore and fairy lore um that the two kind of I, it was just those were kind of like there was were two things that were very kind of like formative of me it was just like Irish media and Irish folklore and so it kind of like that's how they kind of like started to just kind of like to run into each other mm. um I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um perhaps the dual timelines and the two kind of levels of story that we uh, encounter here. Um, it's a great vehicle for when you are telling stories about intergenerational trauma, because you can sort of see how various, you know, things get processed in between generations and how it affects family relationships and how people move around the world. So could you talk, yeah, a little bit about the two timelines and perhaps like I'm always curious about how people structure dual timelines and if they write them separately and then interweave them or if it's written organically switching back and forth. So, uh, well, I, 
so for the first of all, so the, the dual timelines kind of came about as by, by necessity because the there were two um have have the, there was two different pieces of, of work that kind of like ended up becoming one. So it kind of like that came out of necessity. I think it also so this is my first horror novel. Mm. And I was kind of like learning a lot of the there was a lot of kind of like on the job learning. And one of the thing, so the the structure of the book as it is now is is quite different. There was a lot of shuffling around, and a lot of the kind of like the the order was in fact the the like some of the some of the some pretty drastic changes came out like in the fi- the final drafts, um, which I'll which I, I I'll I'll tell you about when we're we're not at risk of spoilers, but um the I think. Part of it because it it just kind of like came about because it's a very dual timelines are very effective for horror, um because okay so you you have the you have your present timeline you you establish that something very very bad happened to a certain character, and then every time you go back in the past the reader knows okay it's coming it's coming and it's a very good way of building kind of like that tension and that dread when you kind of like I I don't like jump scares. I don't I kind of like I prefer sustained menace. Um and so I found that dual timelines was a very effective way of kind of generating that. You know something bad's happening. You know that it's coming and you just have to wait there. You have to wait until it comes. That's absolutely true. Um I love slow burns and I absolutely see how, you know, a dual timeline lets you manipulate tension and sort of like make you wait on one thing while you're also dreading this other thing coming. Um if we could talk a little bit about um the timeline that's closer to the present. It's in the late 90s into the early aughts and it's about uh two characters who at the beginning are are in uh at university. And I went to college from 2001 to 2005. So it was all extremely resonant with my experience of being a college student at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if like some of these are the aspects maybe that were a little autobiographical. In particular, I'm wondering if uh, there's a production of Romeo and Juliet that is described. Was that a real <laughs> <laughs> So specific, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, so... <laughs> Uh, there's yeah I mean yeah, yeah, so I, I kind of like the problem that I, I a, a problem that I kind of like made for myself and I really it, it 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 didn't have to be this way but I was just kind of like picky or just kind of like stubborn I guess is that um, I set the first the the earliest timeline in 1979 and why I did that I did that for no other reason than that that was the the date that Bosco first started started airing mm-hmm. and. And just by making that choice, I created so many problems for myself uh, because everything had to be because I went to college like I I, um, I, I think I'm, I must be just a year younger than you then because I went from 2002 to 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but by choosing that 70s style, I was just putting Betty and Ashton's time in college just a few years before my own. <laughs> which meant I had to do so much more research just to make sure I wasn't, uh, even though it was just like a few years, but I had to make sure, okay, was this place still called that? Was this college society still called that? Was it still here with, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I made far more work for myself than I really should have. Um, but yeah, a lot of the kind of like the, um, the theater productions that you hear about, they were, 
that that was those were the drama stock productions that were on those years. The people directing them were the were the people directing them. Uh, it wasn't exactly the same. So in the book, um, the production of Romeo and Juliet, they have um, uh, all the all the the Montagues played by men and all the Capulets played by women, and we didn't do that. I was actually. So uh, I was cast in that in the production of Romeo and Juliet that was on in Dramsock. Uh, I was cast in Tybalt. I, I was cast as Tybalt and I couldn't do it because I got appendicitis. Oh, no. I was and I was it was just like you. I was I was in my hospital bed, just like calling the director and says, please don't recast it. I can do it. I can do the jumping around and the sword fighting. And the, oh, God, no, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Um, so that, that was one of my big regrets was that I never actually um, got to be in that production of Romeo and Juliet so what now in a way now in a way I kind of like I got to do it myself so that's kind of like that's true I love recuperative storytelling like that you know restoring <laughs> <laughs> It really captures the spirit too of being a theater kid and mm. uh, you know caring so much about oh, yeah. productions um and oh my gosh and just all the interpersonal drama because you have a lot of very people who feel things very intensely yeah <laughs> first of all like they're they're young first of all and they're theater kids yes so it's just it's jesus it's so it's a looking back it's i mean i i loved it so much but i was miserable all the time it's just like it's the weirdest thing the wonder no one was murdered it really is it really, really was. And I remember in particular um, in high school, too, like, um, you know, at parties, like I would, you know, you leave the room to use the restroom for two minutes and you come back and uh, everybody has arranged the chairs into a circle and they're all talking about their feelings. And it's like, oh, gosh, like what transpired while I was gone? Like, <laughs> so many feelings, so many feelings. I, I didn't get invited to parties in, in high school, so I, I can't speak to that, but I, <laughs> I'll take your word for it only theater kid parties none of the actually cool kid parties but you know we did what we could <laughs> um could you talk a little bit about how you use um folklore here um because now that I know that you studied it you have a really probably deep knowledge of it and I'm wondering like when you are <laughs> as deep as it can be um oh, please don't quiz me please don't quiz me oh no not at all um, <laughs> I'm wondering, like, when you're using folklore and mm -hmm. applying it to a fictional story, um, how do you sort of, um, like, wh where do you start the fiction? You know, like, where do you keep uh, the core of the folklore? And where do you, like, do you shift things a little bit for the purposes of your modern storytelling? Or, like, yeah. what is the relationship to the source material, I guess? Um, well, so this is what I have to... Like a lot of the, a lot of the, the, I actually have a disclaimer at the back of the book, basically saying, if you're interested in Irish folklore, here's a list of books to read on that list of books is not the one you've just read uh, <laughs> because no, I mean, it's, I, I, I cheat, I cheat a lot. I basically, I'm, I was creating my own story and where, where the, the, the existing stories and where the existing lore didn't, didn't fit that. I just I, I I created from whole cloth and I just I, like this is um this is what all storytellers do you don't there is no canon with these there's kind of like we every every time you tell the story it gets remade and it's all they're they're constantly being remade for the modern day and to reflect the anxieties and uh, of the of the current time that's just that's how folk, folklore works it's not these aren't these aren't scripture they're not biblical texts they 
they can change, they do change, they will change again. Um, uh, but yeah, I invented a lot. I did invent a lot. Um, the the whole thing about the rings, uh, the Morgan rings, complete invention. Um, the the whole like the 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 role of the puka is you you kind of I mean yeah there's 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 some depictions of him as a ghost there is kind of like some um connection to kind of like to changelings but it's it's very kind of like loosey goosey um so yeah so I I basically I would say rather these I'm I'm drawing on the stories rather than just kind of like retelling them. Mm. if that makes sense um like obviously like as i said like mocking uh Mockendale and Hogarth is a big influence on the story but the story goes in a very very different direction um than that original story so um yeah it's just kind of like i i draw on it i but i don't it's not a retelling it is very much it's kind of like a lot of it is kind of like my own invention i mean in a way i think that sort of is like a more authentic relationship to folklore, you know, because as you say, it is this like living, breathing thing. And it's a lot more local, I think, than we tend to give it credit for, much more localized because, um, you know, in a way, like when people were writing down these stories, like maybe in the 19th or early 20th century, like that, that did like ossify them in a way that never was really intended for those stories, like yeah. they were to live and change like over the years. And so yeah. the way this kind of honors like what folklore is in a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, that's, that's the kind of like, that's the, the, the great kind of like tension with folklore because um, this is so weird. I was, I was actually just writing something about this today, but part of the reason why um, Ireland has, has the largest and most complete kind of like body of still extant Celtic mythology is because it was written down uh, because we actually got writing uh, like the Gauls like they they were still like um, pre-literate before the Romans came so they kind of like their their culture was just gone like we know nothing about virtually anything we know about uh, Gaulish mythology and religion it just comes to us in snippets from the Romans and they're kind of like uh, oh yeah this god was was kind of like a, I mean, he was basically Apollo you know that that's that's all we get. Whereas with the Irish stuff, because the monks actually came and actually wrote it down, we ha we still have all this. So that is a wonderful thing. But at the same time, it does kind of like change the nature of the stories because they, as you say, they do kind of like get ossified. And that's why um, it's a lot of the 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 the, fo the the oral tradition, which is when I was when I was studying the the folklore department, they had the kind of like this massive massive archive um of stories that have been recorded from um like and this is this is in the book there is a, a like ashling and betty they actually they go on a on a collecting uh mission to to, to interview a, an old storyteller and that is kind of like they get this incredibly varied incredibly rich kind of like body of always kind of like changing um oral tradition something that really stuck with me i think is from a lecture scene uh, where a professor who's talking about folklore says that, oh gosh, did I write it down? Oh yeah, that folklore puts a face on that which cannot be faced. And in that way, I think like folklore almost operates a lot like the horror genre does, you know, because so much of horror is hmm. about putting a face on that which can't be faced. And I know for me personally, as someone who tends toward um, baseless anxiety, like in my daily life, like 
I love reading horror because it gives me something specific to be scared of for a while. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm not scared of like the world. I'm scared of this ghost, you know, and yeah. that's really comforting. <laughs> why would you even be scared? I've never understood why people are scared of ghosts. It's like, yeah. what would you do? It's like, it's literally, it's the most harmless. It can't touch you. Relax. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would try to befriend it, I think, eventually after the shock. But like, yeah, it is um, like I really love that horror does that. Like it gives us sort of like a way to process things that are like not processable, you know, and I think you see that in the way that um, trauma operates in this story, too, like sort of on, you know, the personal level of things happening to um, individuals that then affects like their families, but also kind of on a national level level. Um, like I was fascinated by, um, one of the, the folklore bits that you talk about hungry grass and how that sort of relates to like specific things in Irish history that, that, um, you know, where fears were very much connected to like these, uh, these stories, you know, is that something that you kind of, you, you thought about while writing or, that was, well, the, the Hungry Grass sequence actually came about because my mother knows someone that that happened to. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So that was kind of um, just for you. So, so the phenomenon of Hungry Grass, basically it's um, supposedly um, if you can step on a piece, a patch of ground, a just completely innocuous patch of ground, and you will just be overcome with this, terrible crippling sense of hunger and uh the 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 story goes that this is actually that this is somewhere where someone died during the famine Mm -hmm. um uh so i don't i like there's I i think like like a lot of irish people i'm kind of like my head is kind of like a schrodinger's cat when it kind of comes to this stuff like you don't believe it but you do believe it you know um and this looks like, like like anything like like my wife who's kind of like a died in the wool atheist like the most skeptical person that ever meet she would not step into a fairy ring uh if you put a gun to her head um so it's like it's 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 a it's a weird kind of mindset but that's that's just kind of how we're wired here just that there are things you don't do mm-hmm. um but yeah so but anyway that was kind of like that was that was the uh, it, it like just because i thought it was a very kind of like effective kind of way of way of bringing it, but also it's just kind of like I've had that story in my head since I was a child like my mother like vividly described this thing happening to her friend and how she I always remember she goes she had a packet of uh what we call crisps but like potato chips she just happened to have a packet of potato chips in her in her pocket and that's what saved her <laughs> which is that she was able that was able to kind of like to to sustain her until she was able to just crawl out of that place and just kind of like um this is that's what what you get an Irish childhood is like just kind of like just just hearing these kind of like stories but um uh but yeah so that's kind of like it the book was very much just kind of like just taking all of that all of that kind of like stuff that I grew up with and my own kind of like life and my own kind of experience and just kind of like just putting it into one novel Mm. um yeah so that's Sorry, I have a tendency to ramble. I'm sorry, just cut me off when I when I when I start getting to. I love it. That's the it's the best thing that you can do for an interviewer is just keep talking. It's great. (laughs) I I do find that really fascinating. Um, that you know there are things that appeal to us as true on an intellectual level, and then there are things I think that appeal to us on an emotional level as true. You know, that's absolutely at work with I think folklore, and I think maybe like the way 
that we generally relate to things that we encountered as children when we remember them as adults, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, are you working on anything else at the moment? What else are you um, I'm working on a, I'm working on a few different uh, projects. So I've got a few kind of like children's books um, in the works. Uh, the first one is due tentatively due to come out in um, spring of 2025. Um, I'm working on a project that for a publisher I don't think I can talk about. And I'm also working on um, I'm working on a high fantasy novel. Um, and I think that's that's everything that I can talk about. But uh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a few things in the pipeline. That's great. Well, maybe um, you know, you can come back someday and talk about those projects because this was a. I would be delighted. Thank you so much. No problem. Yeah, this is a lovely conversation, and I'm very excited to see what you do next. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> and thank you so much for reading the book. You're welcome. Listeners, please check out Knock Knock Open Wide. Um, by the time that you hear this episode, it will be out in the world. So please check it out at your favorite independent bookstore or library, wherever you like to go get your books. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.